This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for August 6th, 2018. I talked a couple of weeks back to Professor Henry Jenkins of USC Annenberg about the future of the media. For a somewhat different view, in this podcast I'm going to talk to another university professor to ask whether news gathering is going to be viable into the future. Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. They do not want Kim Kardashian information first if they're subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star. Sure, that's, that, not that's, why that's, that's true for sure. Of the people who are subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star, how many people are subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star? Well, it's reduced every year. That's uh, my point. In terms of <laughs> in terms of those subscribing to the paper. Gary Kebbell served as the Dean at the College of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I've got him on the line now. Gary, where is news media going? With bots on Twitter and with uh, fake news, can we ever get back to real news? I I hear two questions there. Where is news going and can we get back to real news? Mm -hmm. So let let me start with where is news going? And I think the answer to that one is wherever technology is taking us for good or ill. Mm-hmm. And since technology is taking us first, we have to be very active and vigilant and aware because we have almost sacrificed the idea of doing these technological changes ourselves first. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the the communications technologies aren't necessarily starting out as communications technologies designed for journalists. Mm-hmm. They're starting out as communications technologies designed for social media, designed for digital media. And then they're promulgated by companies and organizations that don't have journalistic, journalistic ethics or responsibility at the top of their list. Mm-hmm. So the public is learning how to use new digital media, new communication systems, often not from journalists. So that's that's a problem, I believe. And we need to be much more active and involved in trying to, number one, develop the tools, and number two, teach the public the responsible use of the tools uh, as, as we go along. Mm-hmm. Then that sort of, that melds into the idea of news and fake news and, and all. And although I think the the scale of what we're seeing now is pretty extreme, I think that Technology simply magnifies human capabilities and desires and and uh, behaviors and expectations. So fake news didn't come with digital media. We've had fake news ever since we've had the printing press. But the scale of digital media makes it seem, of course, makes it become actually all the more uh, prevalent and instantaneous and ubiquitous. So the question we have to try to fix is ourselves, not not the media and not the medium. And we've been trying to fix ourselves for, you know, eons. 
And what's the answer to that one? I don't know. That's that's a a very deep question. I don't want to go back quite that far. But in particular, and you mentioned... um, you know, fake news has been there since the invention of the printing press. And I had in mind, and I'm sure you talked to your students about Hearst and the yellow press a uh, hundred or more years ago and how he changed the press from being something very staid to something that would literally, on the afternoon that his uh, newspaper was published, if it had the right story, would have people protesting outside the city hall or whatever. Yeah. Is, isn't it the case, though, that the feedback that publishers can get now is so instant and so detailed that they can rile people up uh, really in in a way that was never known before. People get riled in a way that was never known before. And you said publishers can rile people up and that that's true also, mm-hmm. but that's only half of what I think publishers – that's only half of the game that publishers have. The other half of the game is that they have to be active – in soliciting opinion, not just receiving it. And they have to be active in soliciting opinion that in, that sets the agenda and sets the tone and that teaches people how to respond. So if publishers are publishing something and by its nature, people are getting riled up, I would say they're only doing half of their job and that half is very irresponsible. The other half of the job, the hard part, is what we don't see as much of, and that is publishers. And by publishers, I mean a very generic anybody who posts or publishes anything on the on the web or the internet or mobile media or social media. Mm-hmm. Um, publishers have to actively seek out uh, opinions that help guide and direct, and then help add to the conversation and add to the engagement. Well, now, well, you can say that. You can say that they have to. But what, they, what they're doing is they're seeking out and to publish the opinions that get them clicks and ad sales. Bloggers might do that, and, and uh, lots of independent uh, individuals might do that. But I think that question sort of buys into the assumption that the only reason uh, – uh, professional media are here mm-hmm. is to increase their clicks and, and uh, get more money. Now, of course, they have to uh, have a business model that works, and currently they don't. Totally agree with that. But you know, is the front page of the New York Times, the front page of the Washington Post, the front front page of CNN or BBC? Are they designed not to inform people in the best way possible about the most current events, and instead to get clicks on bait click type stories i don't think so uh, yeah okay that's that's probably true and that's probably true of the new york times and some others but if you look even very benignly maybe towards some online publishers like let's say buzzfeed on on the maybe more left-wing side and then on the far right things like breitbart they're there to rile people up because they know that people who have hot blood flowing in their veins are more likely to click and share a story Absolutely true. But but I think your question contains part of the answer, and that is people know why Breitbart is there. People know why Buzz, uh, BuzzFeed is there. People know uh, in general the, the attitude, the leaning, the types of stories that they're going to get on each of those sites. So mm-hmm. people self-select to those sites. That, then we come to the human behavior part of it again. You know, Those sites are only successful because people – are reading what they want to read. 
So mobile, social media, digital media have given us this enormous freedom that has allowed us to self-select and then allowed uh, sites to feed that. Mm-hmm. So that's where the, the scale problem has come. You know, I don't think that that if if um, uh, Breitbart started selecting its stories as if it were the New York Times, there would be another Breitbart. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, I, but I hold, there hold on for a second. There, there's 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 a particular aspect of and and if you compare English language media in the two countries that invented it, the UK and the US, it was always notable that. Uh, and I remember reading that this was down to the invention of railways and that railways came in Britain before the telegraph and the telegraph came before the railways in America. And that meant that when they had railways and no telegraph in Britain, they developed national newspapers and you had many newspapers printed in London and then put on the trains overnight and distributed around the country. So you had many different voices. In the US, you had the wire service and every city had its own newspaper, which is why you have the New York Times and the LA Times and the Kansas City star and so forth. And that meant that you had one big, essentially monopoly newspaper in most cities. And the result of that was that you had almost a benign dictatorship. You had some journalists there who had very high ethics and they didn't need to worry too much because if you're in Kansas City, you don't need to worry about the New York Times selling too much copies. If you're uh, uh, in any other given city, you've got a monopoly there. So you can feed people what you think they should get. And maybe that was better than feeding them exactly what they wanted. It's a very good question because social media and digital media allow the publisher of a newspaper now to involve the audience much more in the journalistic process and in the decision-making process. And I believe that if that's used well and correctly – that that creates a much more powerful journalism. I don't think a lot of people are doing that, however. So when, when you talk about the fact that, that publishers of newspapers would feed their audience what they thought the audience wanted, that was true no, because they there they was no good get, mechanism they should for get. feedback. They, they fed them should what get. they thought okay. they should get. And, and oh, yeah. Actually, co- yeah, you said, it, you said it better than I did and correctly. Um, and, but, but it was still a guess. It was a guess based on no feedback from that audience. Mm-hmm. Now, with social media, those publishers don't have to guess what the public should want or what it might want. They can know more precisely. They mm-hmm. can use uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to actually ask, uh, for our big story next Sunday, should we should we be focusing on uh, the school bond issue or should we be focusing on uh, local taxes? Mm-hmm. What do you want to know? Um, and, 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 and I have to say, be before, asking, no, hold on, Gary, Gary, by the time we get the answer to that question, they're asleep because what they want to do is focus on um, maybe Kim Kardashian's latest uh, selfie or some other story that has an immediate urgency and has a gratification uh, to it, but really has no impact on our democracy. Well, I think you're talking about national media far more than local media, and I think that they are distinctly different. And so when you're talking about the Kansas City paper, or you're talking about, say, where I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, the Mm -hmm. Lincoln paper or the Omaha paper, people reading those papers want local news, and there's only one place they can get it 
first and most, and that's from their local newspaper. And they do not want Kim Kardashian information first if they're subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star. That's true for sure. Of the people who are subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star, how many people are subscribing to the Lincoln Journal Star? Well, it's reduced every year. That's my point. Uh, in terms of <laughs> in terms of those subscribing to the paper mm-hmm. and those you know digital subscriptions, people are just waking up to the fact that the business model has changed to the point where they need to be serving customers mm-hmm. and they need they need to live off of digital subscriptions, not advertising, and that means an entire change in the way we think about the people we serve and and our audience, and not everybody's doing a good job of that yet. One thing that I spoke to um, a different, actually a different journalism professor uh, in a previous uh, previous podcast here, Henry Jenkins from USC, and we discussed how newspapers, for example, LA Times, New York Times, have in our current political situation in the last year or two, their subscriptions, their digital subscriptions have shot up. Has that happened in minor cities across the US, for example, in Lincoln, Nebraska? Well, depending on what time frame you use, the answer is yes. Uh, Digital subscriptions are rising. Um, they, the national, for ones for the national papers have probably made a greater uh, rate of increase in the past two or three years than local. Uh, and that's related to national news and national events. Mm-hmm. But yes, all newspapers, digital subscriptions, if they're, if they're trying to focus on them, digital subscriptions are rising. And that again is only half of the story because the culture of an audience that is digitally subscribing is different from the culture of an audience that is subscribing to the print product. Sure, but hang hang on, hang on, Gary. The real question is, can that newspaper survive in the medium to long term? And that means, is, is the increase in digital subscriptions, is it at least in some way matching the dip in dead trees sales? Not yet for uh, many mid-size and, and smaller papers across then, then the country. Then let, let me put this, let me put this point to you. It is significantly possible that it won't and that the, those newspapers and other, I'm not just referring to newspapers, but principally to newspapers will not be viable, especially in smaller cities in the US. Because if you give the people the choice between, uh, covering the, uh, the, the local tax rise or the proceedings of the city council, one then maybe they'll choose one or the other. But if they've got a choice between those two and celebrity news websites, maybe they're just the that local news just can't compete. I understand what you're saying, but didn't we have this same problem 30 years ago when the magazines were People and Us mm-hmm. and then all of the weekly tabloids in the grocery stores uh, and the entertainment sections of the newspapers? Again, it's it's the same human behavior that we're dealing with now that we were dealing with 30 years ago. And it didn't kill the papers 30 years ago. And I don't think it's going to kill the news organization now. I do think papers on paper are going to die, but not the news organization that produced it because it will now be producing it digitally. Okay, let me switch tack a little bit then. And presuming that they can survive, can they survive delivering us anything like 
impartial news. And in general, in the US, I think that newspapers have in historically delivered pretty high quality news and of course, with exceptions, and of course, doing it imperfectly, they have delivered mostly impartial news. But we've seen, for example, in the election, and one thing that we covered on this podcast was how Russian bots and Russian fake accounts managed to establish two separate rival groups. And one striking example of it was in a particular city in Texas, whereby they managed to create two demonstrations physically on the ground, pro and anti-Islamic demonstrations. Isn't it danger that just the ease of transferring information makes somebody who's smart and determined can really manipulate the population? You're absolutely right. I mean, there that is true. And um, we're realizing those capabilities now. I don't think any of us fully realized not only how easy that is, but how susceptible people are until uh, everything came, that came out about the past U.S. election. And we don't have the answers to that yet. Um, but I don't think the answer is that this medium is therefore so susceptible to manipulation that we need to either abandon it or find another. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to figure out how to fix it. We need to fig and part of that fixing, I'm arguing, is not just on the the part of the media. It's the people, and we need. I think this election has shown us. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Gary, Gary, Gary. Education. You know, we have different software and we have uh, version 1.0 and 2.0 of software. Anybody who's developing or using software will know that the 1.0 version of software is generally not uh, terribly reliable. But we're stuck with humans 1.0, aren't we? Well, we're stuck with humans 1.0, but we can educate humans. And uh, what I think we need in our, in our uh, elementary and middle schools is media literacy education to make people aware of these sorts of things that can happen and to teach them that they have a responsibility to do a few po a few things to check the accuracy or the truth of what they're reading before they pass it on. You, you think that middle school classes are going to persuade people to do that? Not yet, but I think that the problem is going to get worse and I think people are going to realize that the thing that has to be done is education of the audience. And you want that to start as soon as possible. Is, you know, is what I'm saying a good idea? Yeah, I think it is. Is it a, a practical idea that we're going to see tomorrow? No, it's not. Let's look f forward then into the future. How do you see just the delivery of news changing? Obviously, many newspapers have their own apps or they rely on clicks in from Facebook. Do you see anything on the horizon whereby that delivery, electronic delivery will change? Well, I think the biggest change is going to become is come through uh, voice and uh, artificial intelligence. So I think when you combine voice and or artificial intelligence, you're going to get new media and new delivery systems, and they're going to be much easier to use. And we're going to they're going to allow us to be more passive, which is what we want, and receive things. So I think that uh, the new delivery is going to be, uh, you know, piped to us through voice. Oh, so you, somebody's actually reading me out the articles while I've got my earphones in. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. That's that's um, going to be interesting competition for podcasts, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, then essentially my question is, how 
is that likely to be consumed differently? Because you say that this is going to be, uh, you know, it require less attention or less investment from the reader. Does there won't be a reader, but obviously from the consumer. Does that mean that essentially the quality of the way the information is absorbed will be different? I think it does mean that, but I don't think that we know exactly how. You know, it's like once there's a new invention, it's often used in ways that the inventor didn't intend or didn't even think about mm-hmm. once people get out there and get start start using it. And, and so I think that inventions go through these phases in their life cycle. You know, the first phase is just getting the thing out there. And the second phase is seeing how people actually use it, which is often different from its intended purpose. And then the third phase is how that use develops a culture around the use and that culture is typically different from the culture around a previous medium. One last topic I want to just cover with you is regulation in Europe. The EU has brought in what's called the GDPR, which is essentially a very high level of uh, intervention on data protection, which controls how websites can gather information as people are using them. It also controls what data companies are allowed to hold about any individual. And there are also moves to try and restrict the way in which, for example, Google or other websites can represent the news that's gathered by someone else and and, uh, to control that through copyright law. Do you see any of that on the horizon in the US or do you think that the uh, tech companies will be able to fend off that type of uh, legislation? Well, I think I think Europe's actions on this have uh, created global awareness of the importance of uh, controlling your own data and having privacy and better privacy con- controls. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that we will be able to go back to the freewheeling ways before this legislation. And I think people are going to be more and more aware of its importance. And I think that people are going to be more actively limiting and controlling their information until they believe that the companies have established new methods and controls that they can trust. You may not be aware, but a whole slew of uh, US newspapers are now not available online in Europe. You just get a a one-page thing up saying that uh, for legal reasons, we can't show you this website, and they have essentially failed to comply with European regulations. This seems very much like Big Brother, doesn't it? You know, regulations that help us keep control of our own information and our own uh, privacy and freedom, I think even though they're they're uh, put forth by government, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they are put forth for nefarious purposes. So I think regulations like this are helping us and making us aware, ultimately, that I come back to this, mm-hmm. we have an individual responsibility. You know, a lot of the privacy problems I think would be solved if the companies would just say, uh, you have to opt in, opt in rather than when we sign, when we click on the accept the terms and conditions for any new app that we use, uh, where the, the default setting is we're going to take your data. The default setting simply has to be we have to ask and we sure, and but the then you, you don't get, you in. don't get, you don't get the content unless you opt in, which means that people don't even read. They just click to get past it. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we need, you know, we need to have, we need people to be educated that the probably the easiest way to protect their data is to is for companies to understand and to 
and put pressure on the companies to require opt-in. You know, the, the, the individual has to actively opt-in, not uh, passively just uh, you know, give permission lost in these, in these terms. Yeah. Gary Kebbell, former dean at the College of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been fun. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter and follow Gary Kebble at Gary Kebble and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And I now have a Patreon account, so if you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. All of the details are on the website. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.